Hi, my name is Kay. The Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8. These words that I am commanding you today must always be on your minds. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are sitting around your house and when you are out and about, when you are lying down and when you are getting up. Tie them on your hands as a sign. They should be on your foreheads as a symbol. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelations 14, 1 through 3. Then I looked, and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion. With him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven that was like a sound of rushing water and loud thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. They sing a new song in front of the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide. So many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road difficult. So few people find it. The Gospel of the Lord. Our Lord Christ. Please remain standing with me as we pray tonight. Thank you so much, Kay. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love and your splendor poured out on the earth, revealed in Jesus Christ and coming to us through the Holy Spirit. And we pray tonight as we listen to your word that you would continue to speak to us, you continue to shape us and transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus that we might display for the world what you are like. Help us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you tonight. For those of you who are joining us online, thank you for being here with us through whatever avenue you're watching. Uh, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, why don't you go ahead and check in in the comments section. Say hi to Jim and Martha Cole who are hosting online tonight. For those of you who are in the room, thanks for being with us, especially kids. Hi to you all. Thanks for being here tonight. Kids Ministry will be back next week. Until then, you get to be here with us. So thank you so much. All right, friends, we are entering into the eighth month of a global pandemic. And the most commonly used word, maybe in the middle of all of this, has been the word fatigue. Right? It's a word that maybe we didn't use all that often before March. And since then, it seems to be a part of our everyday vocabulary. At the beginning of the pandemic, we couldn't stop talking about Zoom fatigue. Or those moments of having been working in person with people to suddenly being online all day, every day. I would walk upstairs at the end of the, of the day from our little makeshift home office, having spent eight, nine hours in Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, and come upstairs and Sarah would start to talk to me. And it was like I couldn't remember who I was. It's like, 
what is happening? It felt like half a person by the end of that long time of being on Zoom. Some of you are still living in that. For others, and we're now starting to talk about mask fatigue, of just being tired of wearing masks or wearing them all day or wearing them in whatever environment you find yourself in. And the truth is, is if we're really honest, many of, our, many of us spend most of our lives tired. Some of it is just actual physical exhaustion. For those of you with newborns, you find yourself up in the middle of the night more often than you would like, and you're just tired. For others, your job involves manual labor, and you are up early, and you are working late, and you are grinding it out. And at the end of the day, you feel just physically spent. For others, the body just doesn't quite recover like it used to. That as the years go on, we find that one day just takes more out of us than it used to. We find ourselves physically tired. For many of us, though, it's not just physical tired. We feel mentally tired or emotionally or financially or relationally. We're just spent. And if we're not spent from those things, we're spent from the number of political mailers we're getting in the mail. You know, you go to the mailbox and it looks full and you realize it's all just political ads about proposition whatever. And you're just tired. And we find ourselves so often in life looking and longing for rest, looking and longing for relief, looking and longing for something that will just bring a little bit of respite to our souls. And we're, we're wondering, like, where is it going to come from? And asking ourselves, where can we actually find the rest, the relief that we crave? We're continuing our series tonight called The Last Word through the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we've covered a lot of ground so far. So Revelation 1 through 13 is now behind us. We're in Revelation 14 and have eight more chapters ahead of us between now and Advent. And one of the things that we've seen as we've talked through this book is that the book of Revelation, we think of it primarily as a book of conflict. And there are certainly things that are imaged and symbolized that way, but really, Revelation is a book of contrasts, setting before us the one way versus another, setting before us the life of the woman symbolized by Mary and the church versus the life of the dragon, or the way of the lamb versus the way of the beast, or what it means to be a citizen of New Jerusalem versus a citizen of fallen Babylon, and constantly presenting these contrasts before us. And at this point in the vision in Revelation chapter 14, what's set before us is two paths, Two roads, two ways of walking. It sort of reminds us of that old Robert Frost poem. He's a little bit more romantic about it, though, where he says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Jesus kind of talks about two roads as well, but he's less romantic about it than Robert Frost is. He says there's two roads, there's one that's narrow, and there's one that's wide. At the end, there's a narrow gate, and there's a wide gate, and the wide road and the wide gate lead to destruction, but the narrow road and the narrow gate read lead to life. Revelation 14 puts before us that there's a way of life that leads to rest and a way of life that leads to restlessness, a way that actually results in rest for our souls and a way of life that actually leaves us restless 
for day after day after day. Revelation 14, he talks about this right in the middle. Verse 9 says this, Then another angel, a third one, followed them and said in a loud voice, If any worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they, will, they themselves will also drink the wine of God's passionate anger, poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And they will suffer the pain of fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. And the smoke of their painful suffering goes up forever and always. We're going to dive into all those images about judgment next week. So you can come back for that fun talk. But for right now, it says this right after that. There is no rest day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image and those who receive the mark of its name. And then he says, so what this means is, what this means for the people of God is that this calls for the endurance of the saints, the endurance of those who keep God's commandments and keep faith with, keep faith in, keep the faithfulness of Jesus. For he heard a voice from heaven say, write this down. Favored are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Why are those who end life in the Lord following Jesus, why are they favored? Because yes, says the Spirit to them, so they can rest from their labors because their deeds follow them. There's a way that leads to restlessness and a way that leads to rest. Revelation 13, where we were at last week with Dr. Witherington, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that interview, please go back and listen to it. It was fantastic. But in that passage, we see that there are two beasts that rise up, one from the sea and one from the land. And what their job is, is to rep the dragon in the earth to rep Satan in the midst of all that's happening in the earth. And these beasts, as Dr. Witherington talked about last week, actually symbolize the inhuman and inhumane kingdoms and kings of the earth. That those kind of forces and powers that rise up to resist and oppose God and his people. John, in his imagery here, is not trying to identify a particular person, but a pattern, a way of life, a way of ruling, a way of sort of going about governing in the earth. In John's day, it was the Roman Empire and its Caesars. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it was the First Order and Palpatine and his Siths. It's the same kind of idea. But throughout history, we see that there's these forces that arise one after the other, whether it was Greece or Rome or Babylon or Assyria or Nazi Germany. We see these forces that rise up and attempt to oppose God and his people in the world. But what they do underneath the surface is that they're perpetuating a worldview a way of living, a way of being, a way of what it means to be human that's devoid of God. This is we actually don't need to actually think of God as God or live as if God is God. We may give some sort of lip service to the idea of a God, but we're actually going to live life in a way that refuses to acknowledge him in some way as God and living according to his ways. And what these powers do is that they entice or they coerce people to follow. He says, come, 
come do it this way. Let us actually show you another way. Let us show you what we think it means to be human. Let us show you what it means to thrive, to be successful, to have everything that you've ever wanted just the way that you want it. They entice and they coerce. And as a result of their influence in the world, what we find is that people, we do one of two things. We either worship the beasts of fallen Babylon or we worship the lamb of New Jerusalem. We either worship the beasts of all of these powers and forces that rise up in the world or we worship the slain lamb of New Jerusalem. This is what's presented before us. And sometimes we think, well, wait a minute, why are you talking about worship? I don't ever sing songs, nor do I know anybody that sings songs to a beast of fallen Babylon. Maybe I heard a song that mentioned it one time, but then my mom told me not to listen to it. So I haven't heard it since then. Like, but sometimes we think too limited about worship. Worship is not simply about singing. Singing is a way that we can express worship. But the very idea in the scriptures about worship is worship means to serve. Worship means to serve something, to pledge allegiance to a person or a power, to follow him or her as king, as lord, as ruler. It means to commit to that person's course of action and to persevere in that particular direction. It's sort of like saying, I'm going second start of the right and straight on till morning, and I'm not deviating from that. For those of you who don't know, that leads you to Neverland, just in case you missed that reference. That's what worship is. It actually means something more than singing. It's an embodiment of a way of life. And the truth is, underneath all of that is that we as people, we have a tendency to worship what we believe will bring us rest. We worship what we believe will actually bring us rest. This is why when we're tired, when we're fatigued, we are at our weakest and most vulnerable it's often when we find ourselves exhausted, when we find ourselves spent, when we find ourselves coming to the very end of our rope, that we're tempted to change course, that we're tempted to, to take a shortcut that promises us some kind of rest or relief. We find ourselves at times thinking, you know what, physical intimacy, that will give me the rest for my loneliness. That, that, that shortcut, if I just can find physical intimacy, then and then I won't feel this restlessness of my aloneness. And so we turn to the internet or we turn to apps or we turn to relationships that we know are outside of God's plans and purposes and his will for us because we just want some sort of relief from the loneliness that we feel. Or other times we're like, you know what? It's actually financial prosperity. If I can have all of these things, all of these resources, if I have this much in saving and this much in the 401k and this much in the house and this much there, if I have all of those things, I can get some rest from the stress that I'm feeling. So we're willing to cut whatever corners it takes in order to get, meet our financial goals. Even if it means actually vi violating our own integrity if it means cutting corners or stealing or cheating or actually ceasing being generous and embodying the way of God in the world because we really just want this because that will give us relief from the stress that we feel. Or maybe 
we begin to think, you know what? What I really need is I just need a new relationship. Just a, a, a new person in my life. That will give me rest from this hurt or that will give me rest from the hard work that this is. Surely marriage shouldn't be this hard. And so we begin to think the grass is greener on the other side and we leave. We go looking only to find restlessness in the next relationship. For others, we think if I could just get that person to do what it is that I want them to do, if I just had more power, if I just had more control, or whatever situation it is. And so then we think, you know what? If I, if I turn to violence, that will be the way to get rest from this situation. If I could just make people do what I, what, what I know they should do and what I need them to do. And so we turn to abusing others in some way as a shortcut for getting some sort of rest or relief. We see this happening all the time in the world of politics that we think if we can just get all the politics to line up correctly, that then we'll find rest from all of our fears. If we can just make it all work out exactly the way that we think it, it should, that then we'll rest from our fears. So we'll actually turn to bearing false witness against other people. We'll turn to cry, trying to create fear in others to manage our own fear. We will shame other people who disagree from us, all because we believe that at the very end, the end will justify the means. Because we'll have everything under control. We'll have everything exactly as we want it to be. We'll have everything there. So it doesn't matter how we get there. What matters is that we get there. But friends, the will of God is never accomplished by violating the way of God. Never. The will of God is not accomplished by violating the way of God. So as Christians, when we engage in things like politics, we should engage. You should vote, and you should vote your conscience. You should do that, and you should volunteer, and you should get involved in your city and your state and your community, and you should pray like there's no tomorrow. And at the same time, be kind to people. Be kind and be curious about maybe why they don't think the same way that you do. That maybe that there's a passion or opinion or something that there's maybe more to learn about. And to remember at the end of the day who our king is. That we serve King Jesus and he's the one that gets our utmost loyalty. And no matter what happens in November, the king is coming. And he will come again and he will make everything right and good. And the only one that can line up all the pieces is Jesus himself. See, sin, the shortcuts of sin will always shortchange us. Sin's shortcuts will always shortchange us. They cannot deliver what they promise. They may give us momentary relief. That momentary relief may actually last for a year, or five years, or a decade, or even a lifetime. But the scriptures tell us is that that restlessness will actually return. It'll come back if we follow that path. This is what happens when we worship the beasts of Babylon. 
when maybe we're not singing to a particular beast, but we're beginning to follow the way of the beast in the world, we will find restlessness at the end of that road. John and his churches, they wanted relief. Imagine John being exiled, his churches being persecuted and prosecuted and executed, as Dr. Withington was talking about last week. They're under the thumb of the Roman Empire, and they want nothing more than relief. They want rest from all of the suffering, and they could get it quickly if they wanted to. They could get it quickly by just feeding the beast. By just saying, okay, we'll, we'll go along with Caesar worship. Okay, we'll go along with that. Okay, yes, we'll go along with that too. Yes, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll do that instead of saying this. We'll, we'll violate what we believe to be true about Jesus just to give us a little bit of relief in the middle of the situation. But John's revelation says to the church in his time in the church and every time, don't do it. Don't. Instead, he says, there's restlessness at the end of that road. And he says, no, what's called for in the middle of this is perseverance. It's what Eugene Peterson described, borrowing a quote from Nietzsche. He says, it's what we find at the end of the long obedience in the same direction. The life of Christ, the life of a Christian, is a long obedience in the same direction. Even when it's hard, even when they're suffering, even when things aren't going exactly the way that we want them to. John says it this way. He says, this calls for the endurance of the saints, those who keep God's commandments and keep faith in Jesus when we're tempted to take shortcuts elsewhere. See, rest is found only at the end of the long and narrow road of faithfulness. Rest is the reward for patient endurance, not easy escapes. That's where rest is found. Only the lamb, only Jesus can give us that. That's why Augustine put it this way. He said, you, Jesus, have made us for yourself. And oh Lord, our heart is restless, is restless until it rests in you. We tend to worship what we believe will give us rest. And what Revelation reminds us is that only Jesus can do that. And not only does Revelation put that before us, but it reminds us that who or what we worship actually shapes us. It shapes us, transforms us. It forms us into its own image and likeness. Revelation 14, 9 says it this way. It says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them and said in a loud voice, If any worship the beast and its image and receive the mark on their forehead or on their hands. This is that infamous mark of the beast. Or if you've read any Revelation literature, you've come across this over and over again, and it's caused an endless array of speculation and fascination throughout history. Is this a microchip? It gets implanted in us. How does it get implanted in us? Is it a barcode that gets tattooed on us? Is it a credit card? Is this Steve Jobs and the iPhone? What is this? What is this mark? All things, by the way, which John and his churches would have had no clue what they were talking about. Any of those things. See, we tend to think when we're reading Revelation that there are people who have a mark and there's those that don't have a mark. And that what we have to do is make sure that we don't accidentally get it. 
Like, you know, sort of trip one day and wind up with a tattoo on our forehead. This is not what's being presented. If we read closely, there are actually two groups and there are two different marks. There's the mark of the beast and there's the mark of the lamb. That's what's being presented for us at the beginning of Revelation 14. It says, then I looked and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion. With him were the 144,000, which is a symbolic number for talking about all of God's people, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. See, throughout, it's presenting this, that there's a group of people who have the mark of the beast on their forehead or their hand, and there's other people who have the mark of the lamb on their forehead or or their hand. Why this? Why forehead and hand? In the Jewish world of symbols that John's working with, the forehead represents someone's posture toward God, their beliefs, their values, their theology, what they actually think and believe about the world. And the right hand is a symbol for one's actions or one's will or one's behavior. That's what's being talked about here. It comes up most clearly in Deuteronomy in our Old Testament passage, where it's talking about the Torah, the covenant of God. And it tells, and, and here in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying to the people of God to make sure that they prioritize the covenant of God. And how are they supposed to do it? They're supposed to tie it to their forehead and their hands. Why? So that the way that they think about the world and the way they live within it might be shaped and formed by the covenant that Yahweh has made with him, with them. That God would be the one that would guide their beliefs and their behaviors, what they think and what they value and how they see the world and how they actually live within it. That they would be directed in the world by God himself. The mark of the beast, on the other hand, is a symbolic way of talking about those whose beliefs and, behavior, and behaviors are directed by anything other than God. That's the mark of the beast. And John says anybody whose beliefs and way of action in the world are guided by anything other than God are actually aligned with the beast's purposes in the world. See, again, it's not a specific mark, but it's a pattern or a type. It's a way of life that embraces, so it's, it's an idea that embraces a worldview and a way of life that denies, ignores, or limits God in some way. Sometimes that's active sort of rejection of God, almost like a militant atheism. Sometimes it's more of an indifferent agnosticism, like, yeah, I just don't really care. But most often, it is a passive acceptance of the status quo of the, of the culture we find ourselves in. We just find ourselves doing whatever we want, whatever makes sense, whatever feels good, whatever's easy, whatever's safe, whatever's comfortable, whatever sort of seems to be in our best interest. And life in that, in that place just becomes a slow drift, kind of out to sea. And when this happens, what begins to take place in us is that in the words of my friend Brett Davis, is that we unquestionably follow the culture in worshiping what's monstrous, in worshiping the very way of the beast. That drift leads us back onto the path of restlessness. This is what ends up happening within us. See, the truth is, is that we all begin restless in fallen Babylon. This is the state of humanity outside of the Garden of Eden. This is the state of humanity that we inherited from Adam and Eve. We begin restless. 
and fallen Babylon. But through the gospel, we can all rest in New Jerusalem. That's the great promise. See, in Revelation 14, it, it organizes itself this way. It begins with a picture of the worship of the Lamb. And then there's this little middle section. And then after that, it begins with a picture of a worship of the beast. And what's the difference in the middle? The difference in the middle is this. And then I saw an angel flying high overhead with eternal good news to proclaim to those who live on the earth and to every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. See, the difference between those two groups is the gospel. It's saying, oh, wait a second. Jesus is the one who can bring me rest. Jesus is the one who's defeated death, hell, and the grave. Jesus is the one. So I say yes to his incredible invitation, and I'm going to follow him no matter what comes my way and find at the end of that road that there is rest in new Jerusalem, not because we earned it, not because we found it ourselves, not because we sort of like gritted our way into goodness. No, but it's the gospel of Jesus that says there is a road that leads to rest. Let me take you on it. Or Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come and follow me. Come and let me show you this way. Maybe tonight you're here in the room or you're watching online and you've lived your whole life without considering Jesus. You're like, my whole life has been restlessness. Just feel it. Or maybe you find yourself tonight saying, I've, I'm restless. And the reason is, is because I've intentionally taken a shortcut. I found myself on a road back to something I don't want anything to do with. Or maybe tonight you just find yourself, I've been passively adrift for a long time. I'm just kind of indifferent, unintentional, not prioritizing. You find yourself for one reason or another on the road that leads to restlessness. So the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the invitation is always open to us. Jesus is always there. He's always saying, come back. He's always saying, come follow me. He's always saying, let me show you the road that leads to rest. He's always extending that to us and he's extending it to everybody. Through the gospel, we can all Persons from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group. We can all experience that rest. And so Jesus invites us every week as we come to his table to stop and to say, what road do I find myself on? And if we find ourselves on the road that we know results in this restlessness that John is talking about, We can hear the voice of Jesus saying, son, daughter, loved one, come back. And we can come to him and say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, redirect me. Jesus, lead me to your rest and grant me the strength to endure in faith and obedience. Jesus, help me.